This is a crowd podcast. You might not know River Phoenix, but the Hollywood you know now wouldn't exist without him. He's many things in his life, an activist, musician, an object of teen adoration. And that's before he appears on screen. But despite all that, he's known for something else. It's a chill October evening. We're on LA's most famous street, an overdose. The death of a young man, death of a dream, and quietly, the start of a change. To follow River, you start at the end. But you have to look deeper, because River's tale isn't the simple one some want to tell. It's three weeks later, after River's death. Three weeks of headlines and news reports, tears and trauma. This is his wake. People trying to make sense of it all. River's mother is sitting on the stage. She's called Heart. River's friends all around her. The tributes are earnest and gentle. The atmosphere's sad but serene. River is at peace, a guiding spirit. An angel called back above. That's what the voices say. Each remembering a boy who was barely a man. And then there's another voice, a note of discord in the harmony. It comes amongst the accusations and confusion, and it spears the elephant in the room. Someone says, is there anybody here who can tell us why River took all those drugs? His mother's in shock. His two young sisters, Liberty and Summer, run out of the room in tears. They're 17 and 14. But it's a question they and everyone else in the room have asked themselves already. Most funerals are about stories, retelling and refining who a person was, sharing memories to share the burden of grief. With River, it's not so easy. His life's short. He doesn't fade away. He burns dazzling bright. And then darkness is gone. And those left behind are left wondering, like an illusionist's audience. They can't tell what's real and what's not, whether their faith has been misplaced, whether they've been deceived. Because River doesn't want Hollywood's usual trappings, but then he dies its most cliched death. He preaches love, but grows angry. He lives clean, but dies dirty. Who is River? Just when they need easy, reassuring answers, those left behind have questions and doubts, and no one to answer them.
It's the start of 1990 and a new edition of Seventeen hits America. It's a magazine for older girls and younger women, a guide to new adulthood. It features pretty boys and some ugly realities of life. River's been in it before. Three years earlier, he grinned sheepishly from the front cover. Blonde hair, swept back, a classic white tee under a grungy plaid shirt, relaxed in his easy good looks. But now, he's where he wants to be, inside the cover, changing minds and spreading a message. There, between features about teenage alcohol abuse and how to land your ideal prom date, He's written 2,000 words. This is what he writes. We must heal our planet if we're to survive. We are now in a global emergency. We need to mobilize a worldwide, massive citizen army to avert planetary disaster. And then he starts his list. We need to improve cars, fuel economy, switch out fossil fuels, Ramp up renewable energy, stop rainforest clearance, recycle, eat less meat, speak out, give money, protest. Such causes are not cool, not in 1990. America's on a victory lap. As the Soviet Union crumbles, it's all about capitalism now. Greed is good. Cash is king. Society doesn't exist. Your only obligation is to yourself. Wall Street's bullishness runs rampage. It's not just an economic ethos, it's everywhere. In politics, in culture, in Hollywood. Its stars don't eat vegan or drive electric. Not yet. And they certainly know middle America doesn't have time for such fringe views. If you want to get ahead, you keep your head down. Michael J. Fox and Tom Cruise are the era's leading men. They work hard, say little and keep rising. Basketball star Michael Jordan sums it up. He's asked to endorse a Democrat politician the same year as Rivers' plea for the planet. He declines. Republicans buy sneakers too, he says. He chooses a quieter, simpler, more lucrative life. It could have been Rivers too, if it wasn't for what happened in 1968, two years before River was born. His mother isn't called Hart, not then. Instead, she's Arlene, and she's living an American dream. Married, young, good job, she's a Secretary among Manhattan skyscrapers, typing letters and connecting calls. She spends her days watching the suits and sharp minds. They find niches in the market, needs in the public psyche, and they fill them with products. Arlene is inside the great engine of American consumerism. But above the noise, she can hear something else. It starts on the opposite coast, out in California, in San Francisco. And it's growing louder. It's a call to free yourself from the machine, to broaden your horizons, 
to join a different dream of what America could be, to turn on, tune in, and drop out. And Arlene answers. She packs a bag, she grabs what cash she can find, and she leaves her husband, her Bronx apartment, and her old life behind. She hitchhikes across the country, looking for a counterculture that's capturing imaginations and freeing minds. And so River's a child of that revolution, an echo of that bit of the baby boom. He's born on a peppermint farm in Oregon. Warm summer air, the smell of the crops. His mother refuses any drugs or hospital treatment. She stays in the small house on the commune. And when River arrives, there's a soundtrack of applause. And the applause never stops. So the family grows. Four siblings follow River. Rain, Leaf, Liberty, and Summer. And the family moves. Mexico, Puerto Rico, Venezuela. The free love philosophy morphs. They fall in with a religious sect and back out again. The one constant, performing. River sings and plays guitar, busking for money, singing for his supper. Christian spirituals, Spanish pop, old folk songs. River's the frontman in a traveling family band, a group that never goes to school, a set of children who learn their lessons on the street, how to entertain and how to survive. And an education like that leads to only one place, L.A. Hollywood sees lots of kids like River. They arrive by the busload, all cheekbones, clean skin and ambition. Fresh recruits for the fame factory. He looks like one of hundreds of wannabes and jobbing waiters. Until you look closer, until you listen properly. First, his look. River has a sweep of long blonde hair. It frames a straight nose above a perfect mouth. But at the center of it all, his eyes. Here's the thing about his eyes. The right one's lazy. It tracks slightly off center, half a beat off the rhythm, a couple of degrees out from where you'd expect. On set before takes, River flutters his eyelashes. A rapid flurry of blinks to center his iris, but it always slips again. And it gives him something. Something that sets him apart. River has this unsettling quality. On screen, there's depth, something unseen. He's delicate, yet dangerous. He has a silence that screams. And you can't take your eyes off his. This is what one of his co-stars says. His eyes made him the focus of energy in every scene. The centrifugal force so strong, you didn't even try to duel him for control. The off-center eye read as madness. In a close-up, from one side he was the guy next door, and from the other, he was absolutely insane.
Other child actors are molded from birth, drilled and prepped for the Walk of Fame. But not River. He can't be. His childhood is too chaotic, too nomadic. He's still adjusting to America, never mind Hollywood. He's bewildered by his new hometown. The contrasts, luxury alongside poverty, cruelty and beauty, the stardust and the muck. He gives an interview when he's 16 and the reporter is wrong-footed. River is a beautiful man-child. He hangs upside down off an exercise bar, sipping orange juice. He gives honest answers. He's without pretension. He's without a clue. But he knows what he wants. He used to sing on the streets to convert passers-by into believers. Now he approaches his roles in the same way, with a missionary zeal. There's no feeling them out. No hedging, no pondering. Rivers all in. Which is how he comes to be loitering outside a nightclub. It's called The City. It's in Portland's Vaseline Alley. And it's the hottest gay night in town. Outlandish costumes, outrageous stage acts, thumping music and outside a gaggle of underage hustlers. River watches. He sees how the boys flirt and sell. The coy looks, the arm touches. He learns the art of their deal and he forges it on film. He plays Mike Waters in My Own Private Idaho, a misfit young prostitute, numb on drugs, looking for love. He plays it superbly too. Sensitive, tender, the rough edges, the soft center. He does so much with so little, a pause, a flinch, a glance. It's almost painful to watch. Infinite agonies behind a paper-thin facade. It pushes River into another league. The child prodigy is now a leading man, an indie sensation who can bend the mainstream his way. In Venice, at the film festival, he's handed the award for best performance. He's nominated for a Best Actor Award in New York. He wins another in LA. Coast to coast, he's an icon. He's changing a culture, proving a film star can shine their light into the unlikeliest places. He speaks out on society, the environment, animal rights, civil liberties. He does big ideas, not chat show small talk. River's changing the culture, but the culture's changing him too. Hey Hey there! there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema. our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.
We're on the set of my own private Idaho. But when the director calls cut, the drug use doesn't stop. The actors live together, sleeping on futons, scattered on a garage floor. It's as far as the budget will stretch. Sleep is scarce. They stay up, drink wine, smoke weed, and they talk. River preaches about vanishing rainforests, about inevitable extinctions. He's full on, unashamed, unabashed, urgent to share the bigger picture. The cast, drunk and high, get emotional, carried along by his enthusiasm. And then they play, because River's first love is still his greatest. For all his acting success, growing fame and swelling bank account, he's still the kid strumming on the street corner. He jams with the cast, and after they go to sleep, he plays alone fiddling with chords and rhythm, losing himself into the small hours, finding peace. Because he's straddling two lives, public and private, past and future, the bright lights and the sunlight, two lives and too many contradictions. When he's on the family farm in Florida, he's restored by the fresh air good people and open space. But when he's back in LA, everything changes. He cherishes the platform he has, but resents the pedestal he's placed on. The film career he's fallen into has taken off, while the music one he really wants has stalled. And then there's the drugs. Even as River warns about the chemicals pumped into the cheap meat, he's injecting himself with heroin. It starts as a curiosity, watching the deals go down and the users get high on Skid Row. He's researching for a role, but the line between business and pleasure, it gets blurred. His parents experiment and escape in their youth, but there's pressure on River. He's hemmed in. He's teenager and breadwinner. His family responsibilities on one hand, his public image on the other. His mother sees it, but only too late. This is what she says about how River changes in his final years. He did become more and more uncomfortable being the poster boy for all good things. He often said he wished he could just be anonymous, but he never was. When he wasn't a movie star, he was a missionary. There's a beauty in that, the man with the cause, the leader, but there's also a deep loneliness. River wants out not out of the film business, he's still counting the dollars, putting away enough to send his siblings through college. Not out of his activism, he still believes in those causes. But he wants out of his head to cut loose, relieve the pressure, be free of earning money and earnest beliefs. Temptation is everywhere, 
The music scene he's part of is Tinted Brown, Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, all blowing up in public while shooting up backstage. And with River, everything is big. The gestures, the emotions, the commitment, and finally, fatally, the dosage. Viper Room's nothing like River's Florida home. It's a dark box of a bar, a tight set of corners, two rooms, one stage, walls, floor, ceiling all painted black. Nothing like light, airy Florida, but they're similar. They're both propped up by movie star wealth, vanity projects rather than investments. The Viper Room's born out of Johnny Depp's boredom and millions of dollars. He, like River, is part of Hollywood's new, edgier alternative wave. A nod to a young generation who's grown sick of the 80s excess. And when a trashy bar on Sunset Strip comes up for sale, Johnny spots an opportunity. Not to make money, but to spend it. It's supposed to stay small and underground, a place where wild times can be kept on the down low. But it doesn't work like that. News leaks that Depp's the new owner, rumors spread of secret after-hour parties, and stars have a certain gravity in Hollywood. The Viper Room becomes a vortex, sucking in celebrities, reaching into gossip columns, the limousine shuttle between hazy room parties in Chateau Marmont, the Viper Room and back. Tom Petty, Johnny Cash, Lenny Kravitz, big names, play small-scale gigs on its stage. Kate Moss and Naomi Campbell off the catwalk and onto the dance floor. And then, on the night of the 30th of October 1993, River walks in. He's with his girlfriend and two of his siblings. He wasn't going to come, but Leaf, who's changed his name to Joaquin and Rain, are underage. They need an adult escort to get in. And anyway, River's intrigued. Johnny Depp and Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers are going to perform some songs. River wants to hear them. He wants to play too, if possible. River's hand is stamped with a red star on the door. He thinks about heading straight home, leaving Joaquin and Rain to it, but it isn't that easy. There are too many people River knows, too many he wants to talk to, conversations to have, experiences to share. A friend walks past River's table. He plonks down a tumbler of dark liquid, pats River on the shoulder. He tells him it will make him feel fabulous. As ever, River doesn't question. He doesn't hesitate. He's all in. Throws it down his throat in one gulp. Fifteen minutes later, he falls through a side door and onto Sunset Boulevard. His brother's half carrying, half restraining him. 
River's limbs are flapping against the sidewalk, his head's jerking back and forth. Joaquin's losing him. He runs to a phone box and dials 911. He pleads with the operator, his voice fraying with panic. The hospital's a mile away, but the call's too late. The heroine's too strong. River's too weak. The paramedics arrive. They have to get through a crowd to get to River. He's ghostly white. His pulse has stopped. The crowd looks on. It's the Saturday night before Halloween and many are in fancy dress. Ghouls, goths, witches, vampires. And at their center is River, the boy who rolls from the sidewalk to the stars and fell back again. At his wake, they try to make sense of that arc. They answer that question. Why did he take all those drugs? His girlfriend speaks first. Voice trembling, she talks of River's approach to life, his desire to do everything to its extreme. His agents next. She blames a city and a scene. She describes him like this. River is an innocent little bird that got his wings clipped in the most evil city in the world. A friend talks of his upbringing. It gave him ideals and optimism, she says, but no boundaries. His mother disagrees. She says this. River knew the earth was dying and that he was ready to give his passing as a sign. There are theories that aren't explained at the wake. They play out in the days, weeks and years after his death. They appear on fan blogs and in supermarket tabloids. They compete for his memory and look for an easy answer. They say River could do no wrong. He's a beautiful vision dragged down by a world that didn't deserve him. Or that he's a fraud, a hypocrite, just the same as the rest of Hollywood. Those theories attract their fans and followers, but neither's the truth. Not if you look closely, not if you listen properly, not if you talk to those that know him. They know it's more complicated than that, that river's more complicated than that, that every life, however short, is more complicated than that. And how that can hurt those left behind even more. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Charlie Frost. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. For research, we read Last Night at the Viper Room, Gavin Edwards' biography of River Phoenix. We watched River's films and read from the archives of Esquire, People Magazine, The Guardian, Seventeen, and The New York Post. If this is your first episode, 
Go back and listen to our one about Heath Ledger, another extraordinary talent taken way too soon. And if you want another podcast to listen to, go and find our history podcast, We Didn't Start the Fire, and start with the one on Doris Day. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.